Good morning. If you could live in any story, which one would you choose? Bounding through the hundred acre wood searching for honey, running from the sheriff in Nottingham Forest, driving cattle with call and gus, playing Quidditch at Hogwarts, settling in for second breakfast at the Shire. That one. <laughs> Don't forget 11Zs. Flying through space a long time ago in a galaxy far away. What story would you choose? I love stories. I don't think I'm alone. I think all of us love stories. Stories connect us to one another. To, they connect us to ourselves. To, they connect us to thoughts and purposes beyond us. And if they are good and true stories... If they are true stories, they can even invite us into transformation. We're living in a world right now where the loudest stories often seem dominated by collapse, cynicism, and catastrophe. But I believe there's a better story waiting to be told about the world in which we live. And the story starts with these words, in the beginning, God. Sometimes our faith is best conveyed, not through a series of theological statements or scholarly arguments, but by stories. I like how Elie Wiesel puts it, God made man because he loves stories. I like to think about that. And this is our God, a God who invites us into a bigger and a better story. And this morning, what we want to do is we want to start a story with you, one that is good and true, one that we will look to see how do we live in this story, and it is the story of Jesus Christ. There was a man named Mark who was actually the first person to write down the story of Jesus Christ in a book that we call The Gospel. And it makes sense that Mark was the first one to write a gospel because he is a man of urgency. His gospel hurdles forward. In our companion guide that we're using to help us walk through this series, on page 16, uh, the author notes, Mark is the most raw, most passionate, most urgent story of Jesus. Mark's Jesus is not a college professor traveling around Galilee giving speeches, as he is in Matthew. Nor is he portrayed as standing in the prophetic tradition like he's painted in Luke. Mark's Jesus is a figure of action, urgent, immediate action. Immediately is one of the key words we hear in Mark's story. Everything happens immediately. And the gospel that Mark wrote is not an unbiased account. Sometimes when we look at a gospel, we think, well, this is neat. Somebody traveled around with Jesus and just decided to write down everything that he did. It's kind of a historical document. It is not. Mark is not a historian, and this is not a book of history, even though everything in it happened. Mark believed something, and he wrote this gospel to prove it. Mark believed that something had happened that had turned the world upside down, and this is his announcement, his proclamation of that good news. Now, why do you say that? Well, if you remember, over in John's gospel, he makes this comment. He said, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. 
This means that the gospels that we have don't contain everything. This means that the gospel writers, when they sat down, said, you know, we're going to have to leave some stuff out. We can't include this story. Wouldn't you love to get kind of the, the, the extended version, the unedited director's cut of the gospels? Maybe one day we'll get that. But it means that they had to choose with intention for the audience they were writing and for the purposes which they had, this goes in and this does not because they were writing not just a general account of Jesus, but they wanted to make sure that we believed something important. Mark's purpose is this. Mark wants to present Jesus Christ to us and call us to what we will do with his story. Mark is going to over and over again hammer on three questions, three questions that we must answer. Who is Jesus? Why did he come? What does he mean for my life? Now, I realize in a room like this, some of us have heard this story over and over and over. Some of us have never heard this story. And some of us have already formed an idea what the answers to these questions are, whether that is good or bad or helpful or untrue. And I want to challenge us to do something right now. I want to challenge you to take out something to write with and something to write on. It could be if you have that bookmark here that you'd flip it over, there's a big white space on the back. It could be the card in the seat in front of you. Now, I'm going to be looking at you, and if I don't see you writing, I'm going to call you out. So even if you just write down, I am so embarrassed. I don't care. Just be, look like you're writing something. I want you to do something for a minute. Take about 20 seconds and write down your actual answers to these three questions. Now, we're not going to read these out loud, so don't feel like you have to have the right answer, and you don't have to put Jesus for all three of them. If you were to answer these three questions right now, how would you answer them? So here's what I thought would be fun. Hold on to whatever you wrote. Keep it with you. As we travel through the book of Mark, it would be interesting to see, do your answers change at all? Do they evolve or grow? Do they uh, find new life as we travel through? Because again, this is Mark's goal. He wants us to answer these three questions. And so we're going to try to honor that with him. Now at Pulpit Rock, we love the Bible. And one of the ways that we read the Bible is to ask this question. How do we read and hear the Bible as if we are really hearing it for the first time? Sometimes we can hear the Bible in ways that they just kind of runs past our ears because we've already heard that so many times. And so one, that's one reason this fall we're going to be trying a lot to use the translation of Mark that's found in this study guide. It was written by a professor of the New Testament. It's a fresh take. I, I like it. I hope that what happens is these words will catch your ear in new ways. They'll jar you out of some familiar paths, and it'll catch your heart in new ways as well. So if you want to follow along, I'd encourage you to grab one of these books out there. We're going to start in Mark chapter 1. It's on page 61 of our book, if you'd like to follow along. Here begins the story of Jesus. 
Mark begins with this sentence. The beginning of the good news of Jesus the Anointed One, Son of God. Mark wastes no time getting to the point. There's no kind of introduction or, hey, my name is Mark. Let me tell you a little bit about myself. Got a couple jokes. Right away, he's in there. A single sentence, he's saying, let me tell you what I believe. Something has happened that has radically changed the world, and I cannot wait to tell you the news. Now, there are three things to kind of unpack in this first part here. This is a story about Jesus, yes, but it's about three things. It's a story, first of all, about the anointed one. The anointed one was a way of referring to someone that God's people had been waiting for for centuries. Sometimes you might hear the word Messiah. Sometimes you might hear the word Savior. You might even hear the word Christ. These are all uh, phrases describing the one that they hoped would come and rescue God's people and establish God's kingdom finally on earth. Now, God's people didn't know how the anointed one would come. They just knew that he would, and they'd been waiting for 100, 200 300, 400 years, Mark announces the anointed one has happened. Mark also tells us this story is about the Son of God. Now, in this culture, this phrase was associated with Roman emperors. Roman emperors considered that they were divine. Julius Caesar thought, I am divine. And so when his son Augustus took the throne, he was called the Son of God, the divine But Mark is telling us that Jesus is above all others who would claim that title. He is the Son of God. And the third thing here to see is that Mark tells us that this story he's going to tell us is a story of what kind of news? What kind? Good news. Now, this phrase, good news, was actually a Roman phrase. They would connect it to pagan festivals and to worship of the emperor. When the government would announce that a new emperor had been born, they would start by saying, good news. When the government would proclaim that a new tax law had been written, they would say, good news. When the government would report that they had successfully uh, had a military campaign and only lost several thousand soldiers, they would say, good news. I was at the dentist this week for an emergency dental procedure, and he said to me, good news, you'll probably get to save that tooth. And I was like, I don't think you and I are in the same thing when we say good news. And that's the thing back here. People would say good news, and they're like, wait a minute, Roman good news? Because we know what that's like. That usually means something bad for the common man. It was a political phrase. But when Mark says, he says, I'm taking that phrase back because I'm announcing something bigger than the birth of an emperor, bigger than a new set of laws, Bigger than an amazing victory, someone has arrived, and it's good news for everyone. Now, the people hearing this story, because as you remember, as we talked about last week, uh, people would most likely would not have been reading this at the time. They, they, they would have been telling this story over and over again. As they heard this story, they would have sat up. Good news, huh? I'll be the judge of that. So Mark goes on and begins to connect his story. He says, let me explain why it's good news. And he connects it back to the the, the bigger story of what God's people have been doing for centuries. Look at verse 2. Just like it's written in Isaiah the prophet, look, I am sending my messenger before you. He will prepare your way. He is a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. You see, not only were there prophecies about the anointed one, there was a prediction about the announcer 
of the anointed one. In fact, what they would say is, you'll know the anointed one is almost going to be there when the announcer shows up. Someone who's going to get people ready for the arrival. Who is this man? John the Immerser. He appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming an immersion of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. I want you to see something, that John the Immerser is the most important event that has happened in the life of Israel for hundreds of years. His showing up means the anointed one is just around the corner. As our study guy tells us in page 63, Mark is not simply telling the story of Jesus. He's actually interpreting the story of Jesus for his readers. Specifically, interpreting the story of Jesus as one where Jesus is the anointed one, the Son of God. This is the good news. Now you see Mark's agenda. He wants you to see who Jesus is. He wants you to connect the dots and come to a conclusion. And it starts with John getting people ready. Now there's a joke they tell over in England that whenever the queen shows up, wherever she goes, she always smells fresh paint. I didn't say it was a funny joke, it's English. They don't, they're, they're not, it's a very different kind of humor. But the thought is, is that wherever the queen shows up, what has just happened? People, the queen's coming, okay, paint everything, clean everything, throw that out, get that kid over there, do this, let's get this ready, the fresh paint. Because everyone wants everything to be perfect for the queen. This is John. John's like, the king is coming. Let's get fresh paint on. Now, how is he getting people to put fresh paint on? Verse 5. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him. They were traveling many miles out into the wilderness. They were being immersed by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now, we sometimes think that this is, uh, this is baptism. This is a Christian practice. It was actually a very ancient Jewish practice. See, to become spiritually pure in their religion, a person would immerse themselves in a pool of water known as a mikvah. It was an act they would practice not once in their life, but often they would practice it any time they became spiritually impure. And if you've ever read the Old Testament, uh, you could get spiritually impure for a lot of reasons. If you were a woman and you uh, went on your period, you were considered spiritually impure. If you were a man and you were asleep and you had a nocturnal emission, when you woke up, you were spiritually impure. If you were a man or a woman and you touched a dead body for a season, you were spiritually impure. It was pretty easy to be spiritually impure. And there was no moral judgment attached to it. It was just, oh yeah, you're, you're unclean for a while until you go and perform the ritual to get yourself ready. And they would immerse themselves. And they didn't see that they were washing their sins away. It was simply a way that they were preparing to meet with God. Before I come back into the temple, I want to make sure that I am ready and that my thought is there and I'm clean and I'm dedicated to what God is about to do in my life. So out in the Jordan, John is drawing from this Jewish practice. He's getting people ready. He's calling people, dedicate yourself. Get ready. Prepare yourself for what God is about to do. Now listen to how John is described in verse 6. John was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate grasshoppers and wild honey. He was proclaiming, one stronger than I is coming after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie. Just to point back to what we said earlier, it's not in this gospel, but this is the creed of saying, I am not the Christ. 
This is John saying, make sure you don't get confused and think that I'm the groom. No, 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 I'm the best man. I'm just here to make sure that you, the bride, are ready because the groom is coming. This groom that comes, well, let me tell you about him. I immersed you in water, but he will immerse you in the Holy Spirit. I want you to see that John is this incredible bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He has one foot in the Old Testament, and he has one foot planted in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, he's talking about the physical act of this water immersion, but he says there's coming this new spiritual immersion where you're going to be immersed into God himself. No one knew what that meant. Imagine being immersed in God himself. And this answers a question for us. Why would people travel miles and miles and days outside of the city to go to the river and, and be dunked in some water by this guy who's wearing camel hair? Because he was saying things they hadn't heard for years. What he was talking about was hope. And when you don't have any hope, you'll travel any distance to get it. He's talking about hope. Something has come. Someone is coming. Well, when is this person going to show up? John, you, one stronger than I is coming after me. What, 10 years from now? 100 years from now? We've heard this for hundreds of years. Our grandfather's 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 grandfather was waiting for this. When is this one coming? Verse 9. Well, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was immersed by John in the Jordan. Here he is. Jesus also gets immersed. Why? Because like everyone around him, he was preparing himself and dedicating himself to what God was about to do. His mission was beginning now. And he was modeling for us the humility of what it looks like to follow Jesus. And so when we follow Christ, this is an act that we perform, the act of baptism, and we're doing it to follow in the steps of Christ. And immediately, while coming up out of the water, he saw the sky being torn apart and the spirit like a dove coming down into him, and there was a voice out of the sky, you are my precious son, I am well pleased in you. I don't really understand what's happening there. But you know who does? David White. And he is teaching a class immediately after this service where he will answer every question in this sermon, especially this one, right, David? So you want to make sure to go there and raise your hand. Um, what I do understand here is that the sky tears apart and the spirit comes down and a voice booms out. And one of my friends says, this is one of those places in scripture. It's reverent. It's where the distance between God and people is reduced and it becomes thin space. It's real thin. And I've always loved that the father's words appear here. Not at the end of Christ's ministry, but at the beginning. Parents, I would say this is one of the most powerful parenting tips I could offer you. Don't wait until your kids have accomplished it. You begin by saying these words over them and blessing them at the beginning. You are my son. You are precious to me. You are my daughter. I am already pleased with you. Well, if I say that too much, they might get a big head. Let them get fat-headed. They can't hear it enough. This is the way that God sees us. 
As Tom Wright says, when the living God looks at us at every baptism, he says to us what he said to Jesus on that day. He sees us not as we are in ourselves, but as we are in Jesus Christ. Could that be true? Could God really look at you with the same expression that he looks at his son, Jesus Christ? I'd like to think more about this, but Mark doesn't allow us time. We gotta move on. Then at once, the spirit drives him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tested by the accuser. And he was among the wild beasts, but the angels were serving him. Now, isn't this crazy? God just got through saying, I love you so much, son. And the next thing he does is drive him out into the wilderness for 40 days with tests and wild beasts and an accuser. Wouldn't you like to know more about what that time was like? How many of you think, I would like to hear a little bit more about those wild beasts and the accuser? Guess what? You don't get to. Because for some reason, Mark decided, I don't want to go there. I've got somewhere else to go. It's fascinating. Why did Mark not include this story? We won't know. We keep moving on. And I want to wrap up by touching on this last verse. Next Sunday, Jonathan's really going to unpack this more. We just felt this is so powerful, what's about to be said, that we can't say it enough. I just want to look at one thing here and then wrap up. Mark goes on and says, And after John was handed over, we're going to find out that story later. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying, The time has been fulfilled. The kingdom of God is drawn near. Repent and trust the good news. The hero of the story finally shows up. He finally gives the first few words. He says, the kingdom of near is near and we must respond because it's good news. Where does your mind go when I say good news? We often think of good news in terms of good things that happen to us. A, a good report from the doctor, the announcement of a friend's new baby, Antonio Bryant getting traded away from the Raiders before they play the Cowboys. These are all good news. Is there more to good news than just good things that happen to us that we can see? Let me ask you something. Does good news describe your life? Does good news mean that even when you've been broken or used or even when you've been thrown into the wilderness, that you can come home? Another way that we try to read Scripture at Pulpit Rock is to remember that, that when we read a book that was written several thousand years ago, we have a couple thousand years of labels and layers and biases that color the way we read it. And we read words in 2019 that would have been very differently heard from the first readers back then. When we hear the word repent, we often think in terms of, well, that means you just stop doing something bad. You should stop doing these things. Now, I, I do believe that turning away from sin, in a sense, is, is part of what it means to repent, but that's just part of it. Because here's the deal. Stopping the rule-breaking is not good news. Anyone can tell you that. Stop, stop, breaking, stop breaking the law. That's not good news. The people heard Jesus say repent, and as Hebrews, they knew what this word meant. It, this word repent was a call to return. It was a call to come back to the way things used to be. It was a call to come back to the way things ought to be. 
when things were good, when things were right, to come back to the place with God. What Jesus is doing here is opening a door that has been shut since the Garden of Eden. You might even say that the entire Bible is about getting, about God putting his family back together. About getting Adam and Eve back to the garden that they foolishly left. This is the power of repent. What makes this good news is that God is calling us back home. The door is open. Come back home. This news has an urgency to it because he says the kingdom of God is not far away. The time has been fulfilled and the kingdom of God has drawn near. The kingdom is near because the king is right there. Now we're going to see this word kingdom all throughout the gospel. We hear this word kingdom and we think, oh yeah, kingdom. Someday when I die, there's going to be this kingdom of heaven way far away. But Jesus seems to be saying, no, no, no. God's rule, his kingship has just arrived in this moment. Jesus is declaring it so. The territory of God is expanding even as he speaks one heart at a time. And this is good news because God is no longer far away, but he is on our side now. He is opening the door and he's calling us to return home. This is good news. And what Mark asks us is what Jesus asks us is this. Are you ready? Have you put on fresh paint? Have you trusted the good news? I'm going to close with this story. I read a story about Murdaugh Murdaugh McDonald. He was a paratrooper in World War II. He, was, he jumped and landed and was captured behind German lines, was taken prisoner, put in a concentration camp. Now, unbeknownst to the guards, they had cobbled together a little portable radio that they would hide, a little wireless radio, and they would get news reports from the outside world. For many months, there was this underground communication among the prisoners. They would, they would hear a report, and then they'd be passing it along to somebody at lunch, and then they'd be passing it along to someone during work detail. One day, the news came over the radio that the German high command had surrendered. The war was over. But the guards didn't know it yet. No guards knew this because the communication had broken down in Germany. McDonald said that as word began to spread among the prisoners, he heard a thunderous roar of celebration just among the prisoners. Can you imagine the guards going, why, are, why is everyone cheering? Let me quote from him. He said, then the most amazing thing happened. For three days, prisoners of war walked around the camp singing and shouting. We were gloriously happy. We didn't complain about the food. We waved at the dogs. No guard knew what was happening. Nobody could explain it. Every prisoner of war was rejoicing and celebrating. On the morning of the fourth day, we woke up and realized it was different. No guards. Apparently in the night, they had heard the news, and they slipped out into the forest, left the gates closed but unlocked, and on the morning of the fourth day, we walked out of the prison as freedmen. I love that story. But that's not what I love about that story. What I love about the story is the conclusion that McDonald made that he said next. He said this. This is the part that sticks with me. He said, we were set free four days before by news that the war was over. News set them free before they physically experienced freedom. The gospel of Jesus Christ is news that sets us free. 
Even though it looks like the war is still going on, even looks like the gates are still closed, we have been set free by the news of the gospel. And this is why Mark says, my story is about what kind of news? Good news. And we don't have to wait for the story to change. We don't have to wait for the gates to physically open before we begin to change, before we begin to tell a new story. We have been sent out into this world to whisper one prisoner to another and bring the kingdom in love and deed. And we are to do what Frederick Buechner says. We are to turn around and believe that the good news that we are loved is better than we ever dared hope. And to believe in that good news, to live out of it and toward it, and to be in love with that good news is of all glad things in this world, the gladdest thing of all. But as we will see over the next few months, your ability to celebrate that good news centers on the question asked in Mark, who do you say that I am? Will you pray with me? This morning, let's put some fresh paint on our walls. Let's position ourselves to be ready to receive whoever Jesus wants to be in our lives. I ask you to take a deep breath. Breathe it out. Imagine that you're preparing to meet this Jesus. There's a prayer that I pray that I learned that helps make my heart ready. It's called simply the Jesus Prayer. I invite you to pray this in your heart with me. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. 